Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 96th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How's your week going? It's good. It's good. Um, not thrilled with the weather here in Ohio this week, but... A little um, chilly. A little chilly. A little chill in the A little air. rainy. Yeah. So not what I want to uh, to start off May. So yeah. hopefully it gets better from here, though, right? I'm hoping. Um, so as always, we will just take the minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 5th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is down 0.3% for the month and up 11% for the year. The Dow up 3.26% for the month and up 11.85% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 2.36% for the month and up 5.8% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index down 1.1% for the month and up 13.4% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 0.57% for the month and up 7.7% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.02%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.6%. Moving on to big news and headlines, current events from the week, Matt. Uh, It's been a pretty strong uh, record-setting, actually, earnings season so far with more than half of the companies in the S&P 500 reporting so far. Over 84% have beaten analyst estimates as of April 30th, according to Bespoke Investment Research. And this is the highest percentage in over a decade. I guess these equity analysts are a bunch of bums. (laughs) They haven't been very close on any of these uh, consensus estimates so far. So we'll see if that continues. Well, what's Uh, also going to be really fun, I think, the next couple of quarters is these comparisons mark to last year during COVID. Because I think a lot of these beaten down stocks, you know, their earnings are going to look great compared to a year ago. Yeah. And especially with oil prices higher, for example, in the energy sector, you know, companies can make money now with with where oil is at. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, Next, President Biden laid out a trillion dollar spending plan that I'm sure we're going to be discussing and digging into over the the next couple of weeks, Matt. Um, Again, I don't want to get too into it yet because it's all just talk right now. Nothing has been set in stone, Um, but it does look like on a certain section of the population that uh, taxes will be increasing. So we'll go over that over the coming weeks in more detail. Um, On April 30th, the income and outlays report for March showed personal incomes soaring by 21.1% in the month, which was fueled mostly by stimulus checks. Personal spending was strong, but still rose a lesser uh, 4.2%, suggesting that some of the stimulus money has gone into the bank account. So people still saving money and sacking money away for right now. I know I'll have a stat on that for next week's podcast. I saw it last night at what the savings rate is, and it's still double digits. Yeah. Still. Yeah. So there still is money out there. 
Um, finally, COVID cases worldwide are continuing to fall, but there also has been a big focus on India, where there was a catastrophic surge that they have seen, um, you know, is starting to slowly uh, come down. But over the past couple of weeks, it's gotten pretty bad from what I've been reading. Yeah. Um, on the vaccine front, though, Bespoke Investment Research reported on May 1st that approximately one third of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated and approximately 22 percent has been partially vaccinated. So we seem to be on the path to herd immunity, which is defined as 70 percent of the U.S. population having antibodies by the end of June. Yeah, it kind of seems to be kind of the narrative I keep reading more and more about, Mark, that yeah. this herd herd immunity by the end of June. And I'm still curious to see as states like Florida and Texas change the, the rules of, say, the mask mandate is how it's good. That's going to put pressure on other states to do the same. Right. Because it's going to affect business and spending in that state. So just be curious that if we reach, if we do in fact reach this herd immunity, if you're going to see a domino effect of other states, quote unquote, open up. Yeah, I think you will. And I think it's just going to work in the reverse of what we saw when the lockdowns and mandates were initially in place. You had a couple of states that were ahead of it and, and put these things in place early. And then you slowly started to see other states follow. I think it's going to be the same thing, obviously, just in the other direction. So the other thing I want to throw out there is listeners, just be cautious that if you are considering a trade just because we are reaching herd immunity, the market has been anticipating this now for a couple of months. And so I, I would be cautious to tell you to make an investment decision based upon herd immunity with a specific company because there's a potential that's already baked in. Anything yeah. you want to add? No, Mark? that's a good point. That's a good point. And, you know, a reason why this is important is that, you know, with more and more Americans getting the vaccine or having antibodies, we should see, you know, stronger GDP growth in the months to come. And, you know, there's still a lot of pet, pent up consumer demand, um, in my opinion. So, you know, as a firm, we expect that the U.S. economy will soon be expanding rather than recovering. I think that's well said, Mark. That's well said, well put. And um, I don't have any other comments beyond that. But just I guess my big disclaimer is just don't be making investment decisions based upon us reaching herd immunity because there's a good chance that's baked into that stock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything, anything in the mainstream media, in my opinions, priced in, right? Yeah. Things that you're reading about today, that was priced in months ago in the market. Yes. Yes. So moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. The first thing that I had was a tweet from George Marudis on uh, April 28th. And George tweeted, $10,000 invested at Apple's IPO would be worth $10.5 million today. These are the historic declines you would have had to endure. And I really don't like these type of comments, Matt, but I just thought it was interesting. And I'll tell you why in a second, okay. because everyone's like, oh, if you put, you know, $10,000 into Apple or Amazon stock, you would be, you know, a multimillionaire by now. And it's like, OK, that sounds really easy when that decision at that point in the early 2000s was, was not, not easy. Apple or, or excuse me, Amazon was burning cash in the early 2000s. And when, no one thought they were going to survive. Oh, in the early 2000s, we had clients call in when I worked at this firm and they would want to buy Apple. I literally would laugh at them. Yeah. I would laugh at them. Mm -hmm. This is before the iPod. This is before the iPhone. Yep. They had Macs. 
No one at that time wanted Macs. The only people buying Macs back then was education-oriented institutions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so I really don't like when, you know, people are like, oh, if you put, you know, 10,000 in Bitcoin, like, two years ago, then you'd be a multimillionaire. I, I really don't like that stuff. But the reason is this. So George points out uh, the largest declines in Apple stock that you would have had to endure to have your 10,000 grow into 10.5 million. This is going to be great. Okay. So let me just read off a couple of these drawdowns. And when I say drawdowns for people, I mean from Apple's peak price to the low before it recovered. Yes. Right. So from an all time high to the low that it hit. Apple has been down 68 percent from its high, 75 percent from its high, 51 percent, 68 percent, 82 percent from its high twice in a row. 61 percent, 44 percent and 39 percent. And so as a reminder to, to listeners, down 68 recovered. Sold off 75%, recovered, down 51, recovered. And, and as you'd mentioned, mm-hmm. who has the stomach for that? Right. So looking back on that, is it really as easy as people are making it sound? Or is it really as easy as George is making it sound? And maybe that's not his intention. But can you endure having a stock in your portfolio getting cut by 82%? Especially when a lot of our listeners are either retired or saving for retirement and they need consistent income. And the thought process is when I retire, I don't want to have to go back to work and I don't want to run out of money. And if this is the volatility profile, I don't see a lot of people sleeping well at night. Mm -hmm. And this is just, you know, I wanted to point this out because it's just a reminder that investing is hard. It's hard to live through, you know, an 82% drawdown, right? All right? It's not easy. So I'll get on my soapbox real quick to make this relatable to right now at this very second. Right now at this very second, crypto in general is, is on its latest kind of drastic move higher. And someone asked me about it yesterday at lunch because they saw my shirt and they saw it's a Jessup Wealth Management. They said, what do you think? I said they have never endured a bear market and most of these people are, are unsophisticated investors and you think the upside's dramatic. Wait till you start to see the downside at some point. Right. And it's kind of relational to this chart. Most people have not seen in certain asset classes what a bear market even looks like. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And then the flip side of that today too, Matt, is, you know, Apple you know, very clearly has been one of the best performing stocks in the past decade. And yet there have been times where it's down 82% from its high. Even this decade, it was down 44 and 39 in this decade. And it's still one of the best performing stocks of the decade. So it's normal for companies to lose a large percentage of their value and recover. But you have to be also open to the fact that there are companies out there like Lehman that never recovered and went bankrupt and their stock went to zero. It's an accurate statement. So, you know, there are gives and takes with the market and investing in stocks, right? So no free lunch. There, There is no free lunch. But I just thought that that was an, a very interesting tweet. Um, the second thing that I had was an article written by uh, Jeff Hirsch on April 26th. And he talks about this uh, this mantra that's chanted by 
the financial media of when May comes, the sell in May and go away. Yeah, sell in May, go away. So that was real popular in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. It's still popular now, I think, too. Is it really? Yeah. So he wrote, May officially marks the beginning of the worst six months for the Dow and the S&P. To wit, the sell in May and go away. A hypothetical $10,000 investment in the Dow Jones Industrial Average compounded to a gain of $960,000 for the months of November through April in 70 years, compared to just $1,656 for May through October. The same hypothetical $10,000 investment in the S&P 500 compounded to $789,000 for November through April in 70 years, compared to a gain of just $10,145 for May through October. But this is an interesting May, Matt, Okay. because this is a post-election year May. So he says post-election year Mays rank near the top registering average gains on the Dow and S&P of 1.3% and 1.7% respectively. The Dow and the S&P have advanced in every post-election year May, beginning in 1985. The Russell 1000 has been up 10 years straight in post-election year Mays. So, you know, I just want people to realize that, yes, the period starting in May through October tends to be weaker than November through April. However, I don't think that is something that you should adjust your investment strategy around. Because even though historically May hasn't been a great month, there are going to be years where you're going to miss out on returns if you're not in the market. So I just want to point that out to people that if you hear this sell in May and go away theory, I don't necessarily buy it because that's changing your plan. Amen. I mean, from my opinion, you look at missing out on the top five days of a given year, and they could fall in that time period. Your return drops so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my two cents is this is a feast or famine type of, of strategy. And believe it or not, um, in uh, my previous uh, life when I worked at a wirehouse, I actually saw advisors that use this strategy. They would sell out of a client and retirement really? account, go to wow. bonds, buy back into November. I swear to you. And years, they looked like a genius. And other years, they did not look so smart. Yeah. I mean, take take last year, for example. They would have looked really dumb. Yeah. They would have ma- missed on most of the recovery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this is not something I, I, I definitely would advocate by any means, uh, my two cents. But I do know that, obviously, it's still getting some notoriety. Yeah, it is. It is. There's a lot of people that pay attention to it still, surprisingly. But... Um, last thing I had, Matt, was a tweet from our friend Ryan Dietrich, and this was back on April 23rd, and he said, higher capital gains taxes are coming. Here's what stocks did after previous hikes. Two times, stock did just fine for six months. Other two times, they struggled. Appears to be as simple as if the economy is strong, stocks can handle it. Economy is quite strong right now. So back in 2013, Matt, Capital gains taxes went from 15% to 23.8%. The next six months returned 10.5% for the S&P 500. In 1987, capital gains went from 20% to 28%. The next six months, stocks returned 24%. In 1976, capital gains went from 36.5% to 39.9%. Gosh, this is crazy. 
Uh, and the next six months return was minus 5.6%. 1969, the capital gains rate went from 27% to 36%, and stocks were down 20.4% in the next six months. So in my opinion, from looking at this data, and again, it's a small sample size, you know, stocks could go up or down, and it doesn't necessarily mean that just because capital gains tax rates are going up on a certain subset of the population doesn't necessarily completely translate to stocks are going to crash. I 100% agree with that statement. And if you look at 2013, where the rate went from 15 to 24, as you said, six months later, the, the market was up 10 and a half. I, I don't put as much credence in the 76 data point because I think we're in a completely in different environment at that time. Um, again, I, I look at this and I'm not saying it, it's a positive, but I don't I don't think it's going to completely derail things. It's my two cents. Yeah, it's just another one of those things that I don't think you need to, you know, change your investment plan for. It's like the same thing when we talk about, you know, who's getting elected to the White House or which party has control of Congress. It's like, don't let that affect the, your investment strategy. I think this is one of those things that you can't say, oh my gosh, I, I need to sell all my stocks because capital gains rates are going up. I think that that's exactly. kind of just silly. Exactly. I mean, I'm not a big fan of um, letting tax be the number one decision maker on a uh, on an investment. I'm not a fan of that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you want to do you want to go a little deeper into that? Because I agree with you on that. And I think a lot of people, again, I'm all for tax efficiency, all for of it. Of course. But- you know, to make money, eventually you're going to have to pay the piper at some point, right? Yeah. So let's, let's use an example. So let's say in an account, let's say you got 20 positions and one over time does really, really well. And it becomes a larger piece of the pie. And you're thinking to yourself, I need to diversify the account a little further. This one position mark is way too large. Well, what tends to happen? People psychologically look at it and say, but if I sell that, and I realize that gain, I'll have to pay taxes. And the next thing you know, if that sucker drops by 20, 30%, that whole tax bill has been completely negated, the mm -hmm. reason why you held on to it. And that's why, as in this example, I do not like making taxes a primary investment decision. Because ultimately, in my opinion, that should nowhere be near the top of the list. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Making money you make money more money you're gonna to have to pay more taxes that's just how it works and that's not a bad thing no it's not it's not and i don't think it's something people should be afraid of either no um i'll turn it over to you all right i got two pieces of research i'd like to share with listeners this week mark the first is an update on semiconductors i have a feeling you're gonna like this one just because you and i i think feel that it's a little bit of a leading indicator okay mm -hmm. So I'm going to read through this. This is from Bespoke Investment Research on April 30th. Uh, while the broader markets moved higher in April, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, or the SOX, that's S-O-X, was barely higher for the month. That's the ticker symbol. That is correct for the index. Believe it or not, though, through April 30th, the SOX was trading at the same levels as it did back in mid-January. Bespoke and us at Jessup Wealth Management view the SOX as a leading indicator for the broader market. And the relative strength of the SOX index versus the S&P 500 index has not made a new high 
in more than two months. Right. And, and, and why is this a leading indicator? It's a leading indicator because virtually almost everything today takes semiconductors to make. So think about phones. Think about computers. Think about home appliances. Think about cars. Think about video technology cameras i can go down cell phones yeah on on and on and on and you know usually it's it's kind of like the new like uh industrials or like transports theory when when transports are going up that means more goods are being shipped all over the country and things are turning up right coming out of a recession for example it's the same thing with semiconductors now because virtually everything that we make today has semiconductors in it. That's right. So usually when, you know, semiconductor stocks or the index is performing well, that means that the broader you know, economy, the broader economy should be doing pretty well. Yeah. Follow the tea leaves. Right. Right. So um, thank you for explaining that. Bespoke then said in a research note, and I'm going to quote now. It hasn't been a factor for the broader market, but the underperformance of semis, even as the market rallies, is a relatively concerning trend we have been watching. Even more notable about the recent underperformance in semis is the fact that margins in pricing power for companies in the sector have been fantastic due to the one of the biggest shortages in the sector in years end quote. Now, Mark, again, I know this is something that as a firm, you are watching closely being our chief investment officer. Are there any further comments you wish to share with listeners on this topic? No, I think it's just something that it, that we're watching closely. Um, it's part of, you know, our, our cooking, as I would like to say, is this is one of the things that we watch very closely on a weekly basis. And I think we're just in a type of market right now, Matt, where it's just kind of a little messy, like things are just kind of going gyrating almost up and down, just very choppy. Um, For example, you know, S&P and the Dow are at new highs. The Nasdaq is not. Small caps are not. Micro caps are not at all time highs. Semiconductors are not at all time highs. So is it panic time? No. But, you know, we have to realize that that's in information in and of itself right that you know there are some areas in the market that are struggling and we're going to keep an eye on that because there have been times in the past where you know when some areas of the market begin to struggle it sign it it signals cracks in the foundation for the broader market like the s&p or the dow for example right good point so it's just one of the things that we watch and if we start to see a major major breakdown in that followed by breakdowns in the larger indexes then that Those could potentially signs. be a problem but yeah. we're not there yet um again this could just be a pullback a breath for example um but definitely something we're keeping an eye on Thank you for sharing. I have one more uh, for listeners, Mark. This is an update on the Federal Reserve's bond buying program. So can you just briefly go over that and what what that means and what effects that has? Yes. So some people might have seen a little bit about this um, in some recent 60-minute interviews. 60 Minutes did a recent interview with the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman, um, Jay Powell. Louis not a chair of, uh, a, a fan of, of Chair Chairman Powell. Powell yes, uh, you can hear for, him barking for, in for the regular background. listeners, um, my dog Louis comes to work uh, with me almost every day. 
and uh, we currently have some construction uh, going on at our office. We're doing a big renovation and expansion, and we have a lot of um, guest visitors uh, with the construction, and he tends to not be a fan of, of uh, some of the people because um, he doesn't know them, <laughs> yeah. and he's protective of our staff. <laughs> he's sweet as pie, though. Not a Powell fan. Yeah, not a Powell <laughs> fan, though. But um, so this is what the Federal Reserve's bond buying program is. This is going to sound a little nutty, but I'm just going to say it. So the Federal Reserve literally digitally prints money. They, they can artificially create U.S. dollars in a digital format, and then they go out there and they buy bonds from the U.S. Treasury or on the open market or even corporate bonds in an attempt to keep interest rates low. They are creating artificial demand, and that's keeping rates low. But it also does increase money in the monetary system. Okay? So um, the reason I wanted to highlight this is I don't think this is getting enough attention. So um, I saw a tweet by Eddie Elfenbein. He's a trader I follow on Twitter. He posted an article from Bloomberg that notes that the Fed the Federal Reserve, that is, plans to begin tapering its monthly bond buying program sometime in Q4 of this year, the fourth quarter. Currently, the Federal Reserve is digitally printing $120 billion, with a B, in money per month and is buying everything from U.S. Treasuries to corporate bonds in an attempt to flood the monetary system with liquidity. There has historically been, and this is the key point, there has historically been a very good correlation between stock performance and an easy monetary policy by the Fed being overall positive for stock prices. Again, I think this is something that I do not feel is getting enough attention by Wall Street. And Mark, you and I know there is an absorbent amount of money in the financial system right now. Yeah, and it's trying to seek a return. And I almost think you have this barbell effect. And if you if listeners, you could picture a barbell in your mind, where one side you have the weights on the left, that is corporate bonds, treasuries, CDs, money markets in the relation to not risk, but their interest rate. And on the far right of the barbell, it's what I would call true risk assets, i.e. stocks, investing in businesses, real estate, etc. And guess what? There's nothing in between. So, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, there were quasi things, Mark, that people could invest in the middle that maybe had a little bit more risk, but would compensate you for that interest rate, right? Mm -hmm. Well, now it's a barbell effect. It's either you're going to get virtually nothing or you have to go into a risk asset. And I think this is important to highlight because even as the market seems to be kind of churning sideways, some sloppy trading, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines looking for a home. And these rates aren't going up anytime soon. I know Yellen kind of had a gaffe a couple nights ago about rates might needing to go up, but ultimately speaking, even if they double, that is nothing. Right. And so, um, in my opinion, money is going to have to find a return one way or another. And I just don't see the amount of cash that's out there sitting on the sidelines 
for an extended period of time, especially when the Fed literally has a cinder block on the gas pedal right now. Yeah, they, they do. And Jay Powell's just driving down the highway with one hand smiling, smoking a cigar. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I, I just don't think it's getting enough attention. No, I agree with you. And I, I agree that I think, you know, people aren't giving enough weight to, you know, let's say the 10 year U.S. Treasury goes to to three percent. It's not people still going to settle for that. Is that good enough? No. That's now, my- I, only one area of the market it's going to provide competition to are these the perception of these um, safer, more conservative stocks that pay high dividends. Right. So all of a sudden, when rates go up, it provides competition for consumer staple stocks. Right. You might have someone who owns a consumer staple stock just because they want the dividend and they have a longer term time horizon and the yields a little bit better than a treasury. You know, the yields start getting above three. Those stocks might have some competition. Yeah. But the broader market in general, in my opinion, is a no. Yeah. I agree with you there. Yeah. Good point. Um, transitioning to the financial planning topic of the week. So switching gears a bit, this comes from an article written by, and I love this name, by the way, the chief mom officer. Love that. So it's a, it's a great blog. People should check it out. Um, and this one was titled saving too much for college in a 529. Now what? And we've talked, you know, on a high level about 529 college savings plans in previous episodes, but this article goes a little deeper to address a common question from parents, which is what happens if you have money left over in a 529 plan that your child did not use? And I think a lot of people could be surprised at the different options available to them to use college savings money that maybe they haven't thought of before. Okay. Okay. So uh, she starts the article by saying, one common concern I hear over and over from parents is about getting started saving for college is the fear of saving too much for college in a 529 plan. What if they don't go to college at all? What happens if they get a scholarship or go to a less expensive school? It's impossible to judge just how much you're going to need to save for your kid's college a decade or more ahead of time. Unfortunately, some parents let this concern stop them from opening a 529 at all. By avoiding the 529, parents are giving up tax-free compounded growth, and they're also removing a possible tax deduction on contributions in their state from their tax strategy. They're gaining in flexibility, though, since now they can use those funds for anything rather than just for college, and they avoid the possibility of needing to pay a penalty for using the money on non-college expenses. So before we move on, Matt, what is your your take on this initially? You know, the issue I have kind of with with 529s for uh, a big part of it is FAFSA. I don't want to get ahead of you. But my issue about overfunding 529s is going to be a big detriment when the child goes to apply for financial aid, you know, and having that money, quote unquote, in their name as them being the beneficiary tends to be a little bit of a disaster. Yeah. That's my biggest gut reaction to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I use a 529 for, for my three kids. So I definitely do that. Um, but in my opinion, this is not something I, I also don't want to overfund this. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get into to what we can do if people do overfund it. Okay. 
Um, <clears throat> so she continues and says, once you realize you've oversaved in a 529 plan, the financial media will scare you into thinking your taxes are doomed because your only option will be to withdraw the money, not only paying taxes, but also forking over the penalty on whatever earnings you achieved over the years. Correct. Fortunately, that's not true. You have plenty of legitimate options to avoid the penalty and or the taxes. And if you do have to pay them, it's likely not to be too financially impactful. Unless, of course, you started a 529 for your kids back in 1999 by for purchasing Amazon stock. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wish you could do, to be honest. Yeah, but, you can't buy individual equities in a 529. Yeah, so it's all state-sponsored 529 plans, right? So they either work with a large financial institution like an American Funds or like a BlackRock. Vanguard. Vanguard, yeah. those type of yeah. things. You can easily transfer a 529 to a different beneficiary, and we've discussed this before, Matt. If yes. you have multiple kids, this is likely the most helpful because the excess for an older child can be used by a younger one. It's not just for children, though. It also applies to using the money for yourself, say, a different family member, or even saving it for future grandchildren. Correct. So it's very flexible on what you can do with 529 accounts that still have money in it that wasn't used by the primary beneficiary. You're not out of luck if there's not another child who needs college funds and you're not looking if you're not looking to use it yourself. You can transfer it to another family member like a niece or nephew or save it for when your children's children go to college. Also, don't forget that 529s can now be used for more than just college. Some of the funding can be used for K-12 through education expenses, and you can also transfer a 529 into an ABLE account for a disabled family member. Be sure to explore these options if they could apply in your family. Okay. Okay. So the next one is something that I wasn't aware of for a long time. Excuse me, a long time, Matt, is that you can withdraw the amount of a scholarship from a 529 okay so you can withdraw the amount of any scholarships received from your 529 account and you don't have or excuse me you do have to pay tax on the earnings this withdrawal becomes more similar to a withdrawal from another kind of taxable investment account since you don't incur the penalty so if you take if you're you know if your kid get, or she actually provides a perfect example right here in our family's case, this means we could withdraw a total of $14,500 over the next four years because that's the scholarship that her son got. We would then have to pay taxes on the earnings portion of this, but not on our principal contribution. Then we can redeploy the money to a different kind of account or purpose. That's a good option. Right? That's so a good option. So you'll have to pay taxes on the gains. You won't incur the penalty, but you can still use it for other things. Right? That's a very valid option. Um, the other thing is using, you know, 529s for every eligible expense. So people usually think that it's just tuition or just room and board. No, for there's a lot more. There's, there's a lot, lot more. Lot more. Um, so she says, think about all the different kinds of costs you're going to incur. All those $300 books you have to pay for in every class, supplies like a calculator, probably a graphing calculator, notebooks, pens, pencils, art, music, other supplies, a computer, computer software for school, 
registration fees and all the other fees that come with college. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you can just simply look up all of these qualified education expenses on Google and you'll find a list of hundreds of different items that can be used with 529 money that you can take out completely tax free. You can get pretty creative with it. You can. Um, and you can even use 529 plans to pay for study abroad uh, programs at eligible institutions. And you can use a 529 plan wherever you can use federal student aid. Okay. Yep. Um, and this is another big one that I didn't really understand, Matt, until I read this article is withdrawing room and board from the 529, even if the student doesn't live on campus. Keep going. So, so room and board expenses don't just go away, obviously, if you decide not to live in college. She says, believe me, feeding and housing an 18 to 22-year-old man is expensive. If your child decides to live at home and commute to school or rent an apartment and share with roommates, you can still withdraw up to the amount the school says room and board will cost. So if room and board you know, for the year or for the semester is $5,000, you can take out $5,000 and it's tax free because you're still using money to live for living expenses. Right. Um, so even, pay mom and dad some rent. Yeah, exactly. So even if the student doesn't live on campus, you know, 529 funds can still be taken out, quote unquote, for room and board at mom and dad's house or at the student's apartment if they live off campus. Right. So I don't want people to think that they're handcuffed when they have more money in a 529 than they needed or their their kid didn't use the 529 account. There's several different ways that, you know, from a financial standpoint, you can still use those funds wisely. Right. And I just think it's a really good option, um, you know, for people that want to designate a bucket of their accounts for college savings, right? Because in and of itself, you know, you're keeping it separate and you know mentally, hey, this money is saved for my kid's college. I'm not saying you have to get crazy with it, but I think it's smart that if you can contribute 20, 30, 100 bucks a month into that, you know, you're going to have a, a nice chunk of change saved up. And if it's not enough to cover all of college, then you have options, you know, Kids can get scholarships. You can make, you know, your your kid responsible for for some of college by having them take out a loan. Uh, I know that we've talked about that before, but I wouldn't be afraid of overfunding five twenty nine simply because you can pass it on to another one of your kids. You can pass it on to a grandkid. You can pass it on to a niece or a nephew, or you can use it yourself to go back to school and get a degree. Right. So if you're working in a job and your company requires you to have a master's in some degree to move up in the company, you have kids that didn't go to college, you have money in a 529 account, you can go ahead and use that. Right. So there, there, there are a lot of options with it. And, 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 and I don't think people should be afraid of, you know, having this money in there and being like, oh, I don't know what to do with it. There's not many options. So. Just wanted to throw that out there for people since uh, the semester for colleges is winding down to a close over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And the only other comment I have is, you know, historically, the inflation rate in college tuition has been drastically higher than the inflation rate of other things of goods and services that we that we utilize. And with that being said, I, I don't see college getting cheaper anytime soon. 
and uh, I think you might subscribe to this theory as well. We'll see what you have to say here in a second. But, you know, my theory is when someone says to me, Matt, do you think that, you know, the inflation rate that we're seeing on college expenses, do you see that lightening up anytime soon? And my reply is, until it's harder for people to get money to borrow, it's going to keep going up at this rate. The colleges are smart. Money is easy to get in the loans. So they're going to keep raising the price. Yeah. And that's, that's just the, the economics of, of the way it works. Yeah. And I've been talking about that for a while is that everyone's blaming, you know, <clears throat> all these colleges for raising prices. But in my opinion, it starts with the amount of money that's available for people to take loans out to go to college. Once there is a little bit of restriction on that, colleges will have to become price competitive. Yeah, exactly. And until then, with money, money carte blanche, whether it's 40 or 50 or 30 a year, and they can get it, universities have what? Pricing power. Yeah, and that's not going to change. Not going to change. It's not going to change. So that's a good, that's another and good I'm, point to bring up. And I don't want to say this to come down on colleges. You know, they run a business. I right. get it. And I would raise the prices too. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist. Yeah, there's there's more there's you know simply more money chasing yeah. you know the same amount of goods. That's right. right? So I mean, you don't see I, you don't see new colleges popping up every every single day, nope. right? And <laughs> so this is not me coming down on the colleges at all. I'm just pointing out what I think is the driving fact as to why you have the inflation rate you do. That's all. Yeah, yeah. So definitely be prepared and expect um, it you to know, college to continue to increase. <laughs> and there are programs out there that people can look into to, to prepay for college tuition. That's right. There are some out there. However, the downside to that is you're locking in that school. Yeah. That school or that type of school per right, se. Right. I still think, you know, starting off at a, at a, at a local community college for at least your two years definitely has a lot of credence. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you, if, if your, your child doesn't know what they want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think we'll leave it there for the week, Matt. Anything else before we wrap up? Nope. We're on the tail end of earnings season. Still have a lot of earnings coming out with names. So if you see some short-term volatility up or down in a specific stock around this time of the calendar, it's a good chance it's probably related to them reporting earnings. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we have a, a few more weeks of this, but uh, most of the heavy hitters have already reported. So this news should start to to, to die down here. I would agree, sir. So uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the 96th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and a safe weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. 
past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.